Greetings, greetings, everyone. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios on a beautiful November 29th, 2022 here in the Space Coast of Florida. I'm delighted and honored to be joined in the studio today by Dr. Paul Elias Alexander, who is, a, among many other things, an epidemiologist and a former uh, staff member at HHS under the Trump administration. I will leave the intros there. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you so much. I've, I've looked at your show many times. I really appreciated the last interview with Dr. Harvey Reich, a colleague of mine. And, uh, you know, I was very, you know, very appreciative of the chance to talk to you. So, Well, we're delighted to dive, dive right in. We can kick off with the fact that, and I know just how much work all this takes. You recently have a book that just came out. Is that right? Yes, sir. And what's, what's the title and where can people find it? <clears throat> well, um, the title of the book, is a presidential takedown and uh, how, you know, Anthony Fauci, the CDC, NIH, and the WHO conspire to overthrow a sitting president, President Trump. They can, you can find it on Amazon. And um, also, you know, I, I write my, uh, so this book's presidential takedown, I decided that I have my own uh, substack, Alexander COVID News, and I made this announcement when the book came out last week that I think up until the end of December that uh, those who became uh, at least annual subscribers, I think there's an annual fee of 50 bucks. I think the book is 30 bucks. I just said, you know, if you became an annual subscriber, you know, I would, you know, and you provide your address to the emails that I gave. Um, I'm working it out with the publisher to uh, mail you a free copy of the book. Oh, that's so, great. Brilliant. You know, so I just want to let you know that, but uh, yeah, and uh, and um, I think I think if you wanted to to kind of um, guide this interview by the content of the book, what I'm trying to say, you can if you want me to talk about that a little bit. In terms of, I'm not going to give all of the minutia, and and also because I worked in the Trump administration, I always let people know because I go to give talks and people ask me all of these questions. And very pointed question, but you know, sir, there's a certain amount of privilege and confidentiality. Of that, course. That, that they're very, I would say, interesting things that maybe the public should have been sitting in some in meetings for listening on. But you just cannot discuss right. because, because of the way it is. It's, well, that's, that's fine. We can't expect government to work if, if everyone can be privy to every conversation, right? So that's a very important correct. point. Because having done a lot of public-private partnerships with various administrations, right? Yes. The idea that that anyone is going to speak candidly if they know that what they say in trying to work out a complex problem can be just read or seen by any member of the public, no one would ever talk because anything can be taken out of context. So, so the risk is too high. So we're not going to try to dive into that. I would like to touch on um, kind of the most what I'd be most curious to hear from you is your perceptions that you can share as, you know, in February, you know, January, February, 2022, as we previously discussed, being a statistician, I didn't understand where any of this madness about lockdowns and school shuttings and all this stuff came from, because statistically it didn't make any sense at all. Uh, perhaps you could give a little color on, you know, what do you think led up to these radical policies? You know, we, we go into the damage they've done. People know that. But, like, I'd love to know, like, where do you, what do you think 
was the chain of events that took a formerly free society in such an absurdly fascist direction? Is that a fair question? Yeah, that's a fair question. It's a huge question, and uh, we people could talk for hours. But let me let me just say it this way. Um, like you, uh, so you just understand that my background is in, 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 in evidence-based medicine and epidemiology. I studied in at UFT in Toronto, at Oxford in England, and McMaster in Canada. And um, I was actually working for the World Health Organization. This is germane to that question. I was working for the World Health Organization in Geneva and Pan American Health in Washington um, from around the mid of 2019. And I was just working on a, uh, developing a training program for low and middle income countries on trying to teach um, basic scientists and doctors there how to conduct basic epidemiology and to write proper epidemiological reports, you know, person, place, time, and to write, do all the graphs and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, around January of 2020, WHO asked me to change my role as in that capacity, and if I could be their pandemic advisor, huh. systematic review, meta-analysis. So I was kind of surprised because, first of all, it was just me, and uh, COVID was beginning to emerge, rare its head in, uh, in uh, China and Lombardy, Lombardy, Italy. And I grew to realize quickly that WHO was caught flat-footed in the sense of um, whatever their involvement at a deeper level, they didn't have any team in place to try and message anything and to explain. And they really, the basic um, bureaucrats didn't understand too what was happening. So for me, having an evidence-based medicine background and the ability to take copious, like you, copious amount of information and boil it down quickly to try and understand some trends in it, blah, blah, blah. They asked me to, um, to, 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 to help them message and to understand you know, what really was going on. And um, so I did that from January of 2020 up until May 2020, because around April of 2020, I got communication, telephone call from Washington, from persons linked to the White House, uh, telling me that, um, you know, persons in the government, in the White House, et cetera, they had seen my writing, heard what I've had to say, and would like me to join, join the Trump administration to work out of health and human services as a pandemic advisor to the administration. Huh. And to be that interface between the task force and health and human services, more so to explain to the health and human services people, bureaucrats and technocrats, what the task force was really saying and so that they could get the messaging correct because out of HHS was a communications office. So it, it was chaos because remember, President Trump, was trying to govern whilst running on re-election campaign. And right. I think always anything. <laughs> yeah, anytime people want to think about Trump in the end there, you need to understand that he was running the country government whilst running a campaign. And that was a very difficult needle to tread. And I also want to tell people and, this. And also, also not to interrupt, but Sure. Almost, almost, almost uniquely amongst the last seven or eight presidents, he was trying to govern a country with a fixed administrative Washington bureaucracy that hated him. 
right? That's that's a very important point that there's always political differences. But I, I work with a lot of people in Washington, and most of them are very, they're Democrats, Republicans, mainly Democrats as they vote, uh, but but they do have a sense of duty to country, and they usually yes. do their job pretty well. Trump uniquely faced some serious obstacles from some key members of the administrative state, which made his governing much, much harder, which I'm, which I'm curious if you, if you haven't seen evidence of that, that's fine. But if that is plays into what you saw and you can say something, that would be interesting. Yes. Well, I mean, yes. And uh, I could use me as an example. So, so I think, first of all, you need to understand I don't know your politics, and I'm not even getting to my politics. I, but I'll tell you, listener, I'm just a little guy that came from the islands, a village in the Caribbean. And I happened to go to Canada and then to America to live. I schooled myself up. I've been very fortunate in terms of not financially, because I've lost basically everything in my advocacy. Like some of us freedom fighters, we've been blacklisted and canceled. But right. we have responded by this. Right. We are waging the battle. So anyway, the point I'm making is that, um, you know, on arriving there in Washington, um, I really supported Trump, and I have to be on, on record saying it. Sure. I liked him. I liked the policies. I consider myself a libertarian, maybe even independent, a little right-leaning. Sure. But I like President Trump's policies in terms of what he did with the economy, what I saw, how he was standing up for China and the unemployment, people were getting to work. I saw all of the benefits to the minority community, Black, African-Americans across the board. Yep. And I was kind of impressed with it. So when I was asked, I didn't walk to Washington. I drove quickly and ran to Washington. That's awesome. Because I thought it was an honor for any president to if Obama had asked me, if the Biden administration, much as I detest, they're trying, to me, they're destroying America, I would work for the Biden administration. They it's an honor to serve your country. Absolutely. It is. It is. So when I got there, so you understand, it was told to me quickly that the word in D.C. was, there was this scientist guy who taken up a position at HHS, and some people think he supports Trump. So... The, the, the deep state, it was explained bluntly that the deep state has decided, and the deep state, the listeners should understand, is not a bunch of men and women running around in, in a soldier-looking uniforms with big guns running around. No, no, no. The deep state is the bureaucracy. Right. It's the entrenched bureaucracy of people there, 20, 30 years, who think erroneously that they own America. Yep. And it belongs to them. And they told me that the president only visits here. The right. president is only here for four, maybe eight years. They're just a passing through. Right. We own this and we run this. Right. So it was told to me straight out first day when I went to my office that uh, the deep state decided that they're not going to hire you. So I was surprised because I had shipped furniture I had just rented you had a job, you thought. <laughs> yeah, I had just rented an apartment in, in Washington right. for almost $3,000 a month of so my own money. So I'm expecting now to get paid. And um, I was told that they're not going to complete your hire poll. So I said, well, I don't understand. I was asked, you know, I, I came, I reported to work and I have to go on. 
Uh, no, they're not going to do that because they want the, the, the word now, and I'm talking about the highest levels of government telling me this. The word is that they're going to frustrate you quickly to leave. Right. You'll get no support in your office, no administrative support, nothing to do right. anything, to even print a document so that you will pretty much go back where you came from. So, you know, I actually thought in the beginning that was a joke. So, you know, um, because my bosses had me sitting in on some of the highest level meetings day one and trying to get exposed to the situation. Remember, this is May, early May 2020. Washington was locked down. Everything was in masks and everybody, and it was just paranoia. And, and um, it was so much paranoia that the hotel that when I went to Washington the first night with, some fam with my family, um, I checked in saying, well, the next day I will go about finding a place and all of that. After about an hour, the hotel let, let us know we have to leave because they just designated that hotel, a COVID hotel, and they explained that the first six floors or something had to only be for COVID. A bunch of, it was just chaos. So we had to go to another hotel, same thing. So it was just, you had to be there to understand this bustling place of Washington that you think was almost empty and ghost town-like. Right. And which in so normal circumstances right. is my dream if Washington just stopped. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But, but, and but that, you know, I say that somewhat jokingly because of the topic we're talking about. I, 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 I never want to give the impression that everyone in Washington's a nightmare because I deal with a lot of really great people who do a lot of really great work. Uh, but the ones that concern me are the ones that you, that you're referring to that say things like, you know, we control the country. We don't serve the president. Those people worry me deeply. There are yeah. vast numbers of great folks at energy, commerce, treasury that are doing great stuff for the country. And I never want to besmirch them, but go on. I do. I do stay same. There are a lot, I, I met a lot of great people across time, but it's interesting with this deep state because they basically said that they run this country and they're not going to hire you, Paul. They're not going to finish your paperwork. So it was kind of bizarre. So my bosses and, and, and the government had a problem because here I am going into HHS every day. I got this temporary security clearance. But, and, and I was assigned this nice office with my name on it, but no paperwork and no, no, no nothing. Great. So then... So then, so then bosses decided, well, we can't have you just sitting around here. Why we try to work this out with the deep state, bureaucracy, <laughs> HR? They're right. talking to me just like this. Right. We, um, we're going to assign you a laptop and try to get you a, a government-issued phone. So they did work behind the scenes, and they got me a government phone, laptop. Then I, then I started to get some calls to go to certain offices to do some security clearances. So I started to do that. But no paperwork. Right. So, so I'm saying, but how, and, and everybody's asking me, but how could you be walking around going to, I mean, I actually visited the White House three times. Um, I went in, in serious meetings and uh, these people have me walking around like I'm just floating around. Then my bosses decide, well, we can't have this because of security issues. So we have to designate you something. So they worked behind the scenes and got some compromise that, Deep State wasn't going to hire me. And uh, I wasn't going because I had invested money to come right. there. Plus, I had the skill set. We were in deep in a pandemic. And the excuses they were using, just so people know, the excuses they were using were probably 
the government bureaucrats, they have public sector unions. They were complaining that you weren't a union member. You hadn't gone through the normal hiring processes that the union has negotiated with the government. So the deep state is an excellent catchphrase for what in essence is really boring bureaucrats who just refuse to do anything. (laughs) Yeah. But, but 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 remember too, there was this. It was very palpable, Chris. Yeah. That there was this this disdain and dislike for Trump. Yeah, that, hate him. That, hate that, him. That, oh. If you, if you, and I'm trying hard to work around them by by not signaling. Well, you know, I'm a scientist, uh, an evidence based medicine person. First, you know, whether I like Trump or not, I'm here to do a job. We're in a pandemic. I was already giving advice to people like Dr. Hahn who headed the FDA, Dr. Redfield, who headed the CDC, et cetera, Dr. Girard, who's running the testing. All these people were in my building because during the pandemic- And you still don't have an employment contract. Yeah, and I have nothing. (laughs) Magic. (laughs) Yeah. So so what was was also interesting about it is finally, um, they told me that uh, they're going to designate me a volunteer because, um, because- I was coming there first as a Trump appointee. Then they said um, the deep state wouldn't even move on that. So we're going to get you as a volunteer so that you have some status. So I said, but how can I go into these high-level meetings and talk to people and write all of these communications and briefings as a volunteer? They said, look, this is COVID. We're in a catastrophic situation, and we need your technical expertise, and you are actually helping. Because I'd already started sitting in Operation Warp Speed meeting. Because right. Operation Warp Speed, in case people, I could see, Operation Warp Speed was run and headquartered out of my building on the seventh floor. My office was on the sixth floor of HHS, exactly opposite my upstairs of my office, if I walked up the firewalls, firecase stairway, was Operation Warp Speed and all of the leaders, Dr. Slowey, et cetera. Right. Um, so they said, well, we'll make you a volunteer so you have some status. So that because there's a lot of security too in the building, especially connected to Operation Warp Street, seventh floor, yes. that when people stop you, and there's a lot of military, a lot of soldiers was on that floor. If you get stopped, you have to be able to have some sort of a domicile of why you're in this building. Yeah. So the military a- mind is very... Very rule oriented. They don't want to hear complicated explanations. No, <laughs> no, no. But I met you with a gun does not want to hear your story. <laughs> no, no, no. And, and there were weapons too. So, and these, I met some really, really great, some of the best people I met when those Operation Warp Speed meetings. And most of it was the Navy were there. Yeah. The military. There's a lot of logistic issues. So, um, it was quite a funny with this deep state still because I'm trying to explain and I tried to cover it in the book. I tried to explain to people that after a certain period, uh, my bosses came to me and said, well, it looks like they're not going to complete your hire. So your designation is as a volunteer, but you know what? Um, we're trying to get you salary. So I was going along and I wasn't getting paid. Wow. And people, people didn't understand I was getting no income. That's crazy. And my boss would say, but Paul, how are you holding on? I said, listen, I spent almost 10000 bucks to get here. I shipped furniture. I, I just signed a lease for a year. 
Right. That they've told me that I can't break that lease unless I pay it off. I don't have that money. Right. So I have to try and see if you pay me. Right. So so the, the, the interesting thing about that is that um finally, exactly how the conversation went about, I wouldn't say exact, but I'll say this. The military told me, I was informed, Department of Defense, that they knew of my situation at HHS where I have been here and in no man's land and not getting paid for a long period of time. But they said, we can't have this crap horse right. because you are actually part of the system and you're working. Right. So we are going to find money. We are going to complete this hire. Right. So, so we're going to find maybe you're a consultant of some kind. Right. right. So so then so then I was kind of told that you're going to actually be while you're here in HHS, you kind of actually are employee of the Department of Defense. And, uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> the Department. God, God bless you for putting up with this madness. Kafka was an optimist. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then and then they said that you, your pay will come from the military Department of Defense. And right. as they said that. Said that I got my first paycheck from DOD, right. and then I got a second paycheck. <laughs> and I went, I went to the the pay people, and I said, okay, whatever my back pay, you know, because for all this time I've been in DC, I, I got no money. Right. And they laughed at me basically, and they said, look, we know of a situation. We we tried military to help you. Right. So uh, you know, be thankful that you're getting some income now. <laughs> so so. Basically, I worked for a period with no money, no income from the government. But I loved it, Chris, because I felt privileged constantly that I was going to serve in America. I, when I was 18 years old in the islands, I'll just tell you this. Uh, Top Gun had come out as that big show in America. Right. And we got cable for the first time in the islands. And, uh, and, and I saw that show, Top Gun. And I yeah. looked at it and I said, you know, wow, I am going to America. I want to go back to, I'm going to university. I'm going to find my way. And um, I want to be an Air Force pilot. Nice. So I sat, down, I sat down and I wrote a letter. I said, I want to serve the United States military. I wrote the United States. Back then, we didn't have no internet and all that. So, right. so I went into the, 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 the um, you know, everybody had this set of encyclopedias somebody sold you. Right, so, exactly. Oh, pity the poor encyclopedia salesman. They were great people. Yeah, for yeah. Years. Gone. My, my, father, <laughs> my father bought this stack of encyclopedias back then too. He got sucked into that. But anyway, it was great because I played around with it and I found an address for the U.S. Air Force and I wrote. I wrote a handwritten letter and I said, you know, I've come from the islands and blah, blah, blah. I'm, I, I'm not a citizen. I'm not even a resident. But I want to serve America. Because I was fascinated by the idea. I just wanted to, to, to become part of America. And um, I mailed it. And after about six months, I got a response. I was surprised from the US Air Force, right. the commander, whomever. And he, they wrote me a very nice letter, basically an FO letter. But it was a response. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And, and he said they explained that, you know, in times of war and conflict, the military have all of these different avenues that they could take people without citizenship, et cetera, who served, and they could work things out after when they return. But because we're not in conflict at that time, and you are not a legal resident, um, we can't take you. But if you do get to America, blah, 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 please come and, and enlist. Come look us up. Come, look, come, yeah. come visit but, us at the Air Force. <laughs> but for you to understand, and around then Reagan was on deck, 
and I was so fascinated by Reagan and the politics of America. I was very schooled in American politics just from studying it, looking at it. But I took that FO letter. I was so proud that That's the United great. States military, with a with a seal on this letter, told me F off. That's fabulous. I you were officially told to F off by the US military. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> and, I, and I framed the letter and I put it up on the wall in my bedroom. And I would invite, when my friends came by for us to go and ride and to play and to go and hang out with the girls or whatever, I would let them come into my bedroom to see the Apple letter. That's because awesome. I was so proud of just the American symbol that the United States wrote me back in the islands to tell me F off. But that letter meant more to me. That's because awesome. it came from America. And I wanted to say that that's why when the administration asked me to come, I had to serve any president, any president, left, that's right. A, that's a fabulous story, quite frankly. That is, you know, in, in large measure, I'm delighted you gave your talents to the American people without pay, and we all owe you. Yes, I did. You didn't need to do that, and no. it's a disgrace what the bureaucrats did to you. But go on. <laughs> but but the point is, so so if we get to COVID quickly, look, we knew very early on, maybe two weeks in. So after the, the country was shut down March 15, 16 to 2020, we knew that COVID was amenable to risk stratification and that there was a steep age risk curve where baseline risk was prognostic on your severity of outcome. Right. So we knew that there was... There was a steep difference in risk between a differential between Granny at 85 and Johnny at 10. Yeah. Yet this message came out from Fauci and Burks on the podium that we were all at equal risk of severe outcome if exposed and infected. That was a lie. Oh, that complete lie. It was an utter that lie. That was a lie. That doomed the pandemic response out of the gate. That yep. lie. Because that was impossible. And that's what's stuck in the head. Why do you think, everything. and I'm curious, because I knew that was a lie from watching the statistics in Italy in January and February. Their, their assertion that everyone was at risk was absurd. Why, in your opinion, did they start that lie? What, what, what made them get up as doctors, look at data, and then lie about it to us? Do you have any idea? Well, well I think, I think, I mean, so to answer any question, one would have to go back to the origins and when, why did it, when did this happen? Who was involved? You know, the lab leak versus wet mark, all that crap. But yeah. but the point is that- and I don't want to get lost in the details. because part no, of no, it, no. But here's why. No. I, just want, I want to clarify for you. Part of why is when I try to speak to people about this who don't pay attention, the biggest mistake those of us trying to bring clarity make is we have so many of the details in our heads People yes. don't want to hear about it. So they really just want like, well, but, but okay, all that, the debating about the origins and all that, like, is there just some, and there may not be, but is there just some kind of overarching simplistic reason? Do they think it would just be better for public health if they lied? Because people would be scared. Like, there may not be a simple answer, but that's what I'm kind of asking. Is there, in your opinion, an overarching well, reason my, they did it? My opinion is this. If you message to a population long and hard enough negative information, you will eventually terrorize them and torment them into compliance. Right. And if the game, if the game was to subject people 
to force them into compliance and to go along. They did a good job and they achieved it because, because that message to me, to me, the American woman, especially the American mother, runs America. Yes. To me, runs I, the world. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. That's been my you, experience. I'm a big player in this saga. <laughs> yeah. And and if you if there's only one person when you get up on a political stump or anywhere, any camera, and you speak to the American mother, you could basically change everything because she will drive the American father. Right. And she will she will get you to where you need to go. So they were speaking to her. And huh. what they did was they scared her. They scared her to take six-year-old John with no underlying medical condition to the prime of his life, six years old, yeah. okay, with zero risk of severe outcome. The data was already clear yeah. and death from COVID. We found, we found up to today, up to today, after three years, we've looked at the data three years now. We can't find one healthy child, one, right. across the United States of America who has gotten infected with COVID and died. And I want to say that again. Marty McCary, we all looked at the data. Yep. Not one healthy child in America got COVID infection and died. Yep. If you bring to me a young person, see what this person, that person probably A, may not have had COVID, B, died with COVID, not from COVID. Not from COVID, and, right. And C, that person was gravely ill. That absent of COVID, they had grave underlying medical conditions. We cannot find, and we've looked at data in Sweden, we looked at data in Germany, that's global data. Yep. So they needed to scare mothers in America and to tell her that your six-year-old who has zero risk of death is at the same risk of death as 85-year-old granny with three underlying medical conditions. And that was a catastrophic bull, yep. blunt, lie by Fauci and Burke. But it also, it also didn't work, right? Well, let me lay back up. If their intention was to scare all mothers equally, they failed. My wife, look at this. She can read statistics as well. She had done a PhD in psychology, gone through statistical courses, and she was right there with me on looking at this data. And when Fauci and, and Burke started saying this crap about children being at risk, I mean, she's looking at me and she and we're having this conversation like, why are they lying? This is absurd. The children aren't at risk. But they did scare enough, clearly, because they shut yeah. down schools and some thank God I live in Florida, where we didn't put up with this crap and were reviled yeah. by the by the Biden administration because DeSantis made good choices. But so your 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 impression is they did actually manage to scare enough mothers to believing this was dangerous and that was their goal. Yeah, and they were going to do it, whether they achieved the goal or not. Right. But they had their plan between that, between, between um, the fact that they were going to fund this with, with all of those, uh, with that uh, COVID relief money. Because it was one thing after the first two weeks of, uh, give us two weeks to bend the curve, then you're going to ask people to be locked down in perpetuity. Crazy. You've got to pay them. Because if you didn't pay people that little bit of money, they would have gone, they would have rioted in America. They destroyed America. Yep. So, so they knew what they were doing. They knew what it was like a concerted plan. And that lie combined with the lie of asymptomatic transmission. 
that was also a huge lie. Those two lies doomed the pandemic day one. Right. Because they told you to look at everybody around you as a diseased person. And they told you that, hey, look, you might be healthy, you know. You are clear-eyed, bushy-haired, everything. You're <laughs> healthy, you're going to the gym, you're feeling fine. You have no symptoms. Right. You, you, you are fine, but you have COVID. And you're spreading it to granny, and you're killing granny. So it messed with your head. You say, but wait, I had to do my civic good. I had to lock my ass down and stay below the bed because they told me that. Right. And, and they lied. That First was a lie. It's madness. The second lie. The third lie was the fraud, flawed PCR. I think if you ask me which one thing really doomed the panic is that PCR test. Yeah. Because we knew very early that the PCR test was over-cycled and over-sensitive. And anything over 24 amplification was detecting viral dust and fragments. It was not infectious. That, that's an interesting point I'd like you to expand upon for people who don't understand the technical uh, uh, details of how a test works. So you just gave a measure of some amount yeah. of material that would be present. How does that compare to some other kind of viral test where it would not be as sensitive, meaning it would only really show a viral load that was actually significantly dangerous. Is there such a comparison? Well, I mean, I don't know if there's a comparison like that head to head, but the point is that out of the gate, we knew that the, 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 the designer of this test said, this is not a diagnostic test. PCR was a process a process that just amplified DNA. Oh. They were using it to, as a diagnostic test. When, when oh. so the system, when you amplify the, the genetic material, you take the swab, you put it in, you amplify it against background to see. So, so in other words, they can't see it using just simple layman terms. You're trying to enlarge it. You're replicating it. So that, but, but what the data showed across the world is with every amplification, once you got around 24, 25, at that point, 24, 25 amplifications and below, that denoted, it was correlated very strongly with severe outcome and infectiousness. Okay. And likely that that is the particular, the, the particular pathogen that you were, you were checking, you were trying to detect. Once you went above 25 cycles, you are now not detecting that virus, and the chance of being infectious, even if it was, was almost zero. So much so that by the time you hit 30 cycles, you were detecting what they call viral fragments, viral dust, old coronavirus from common cold, uh, recovered coronavirus, fragments of different viruses, could be cold. So this is a practically useless test as an indicator as an indicator of whether you were likely to suffer a disease outcome. Yes, okay. very like, unlikely. And CDC set our cycle threshold at 40. 40. So that the people began to write, scientists have published papers that at 40, 97% would be false positive. So I need you to understand that statement. 97% of people who would be noted as positive in 2020 and even early 2021 was false. Were false. That's we took fabulous. Money out of school. 
Wow. We took them out of school. We shut universities down. We shut our schools down. There's some universities that are still doing this bullshit right now. It's ridiculous. It is crazy. It was false positive. And that was the third. So, so far, equal risk of severe outcome. First lie, combined with asymptomatic transmission, combined with this flood. This PCR test had Berks and they going up on that stage every day, showing us all of these graphs and spooking Trump. All of these numbers going up, going up, going up of infections. Right. Meanwhile, we now know that the the head of CNN, every time he looked at the screen, called the production department and told them to make the numbers bigger, literally, like larger font. Like he's like, it's not big enough. Make it scary. Crowd out the people. Make make the numbers as large as you can. Right. So they're all colluding to to scream people that this is a constant danger. And a real threat. Yes, and we looking on at this task force that we like a clown car. They became. They were just lying. Right. They were lying to us, and the fourth. There's a fourth. I'm just giving it. Three is bad enough. What's the fourth? <laughs> <laughs> the fourth was pre-Omicron. Pre-Omicron, this issue of recurrent reinfection, because when we were looking at the data, we were not. Dr. McCullough did a deep dive with me, and even Harvey. We were looking at the studies and we were looking at the various reports. We are not finding evidence of reinfection recurrent. I said pre-Omicron, pre-Omicron era, that that people were going to get reinfected. In other words, we were arguing and we were confident that natural immunity was holding and bulletproof. Right. That you were infected, you would be protected. Okay. Right. Now, the issue is that why I keep saying so that was a lie. When they were saying, well, you know, you have to do this. You have to stay locked down and keep these masks on because you would get reinfected. That was a lie. A fifth lie was the masks. Oh. You look to the data. I published in Brownstone a study, a review with Jeff Tucker, and there are 150 pieces of evidence. I looked at all of the studies, and there were only two comparative studies, effectiveness studies at that point, RCTs. Uh, one was the Danish, then masks study and one yeah. would be one out of Bangladesh. Both of them. Both of them showed and they were poorly done. Well, the Danish study was actually a, a really good study. They both showed that the masks were ineffective. No, no real difference. Totally ineffective. Yep. And we looked at the mandates. We saw that everywhere you impose a mask mandate, infections actually went up. So there was no study across the world, none, still up to today, up to today that shows that any place that used those blue surgical masks and white cloth masks work to curb infections or stop that. Not one. No one can show me anyone a yep. study. There's no study anywhere in this world up to today, after three years. You want, you want to know what I find so infuriating about this, right? Is that, and this, this ruptured, I mean, we've all had relationships damaged over this insanity. But I sat on a board with, I want to be careful because I don't want to identify him. Yeah. I sat on a board with, with a medical doctor who was the, a business executive of a medical company. That's all. It doesn't matter. Smart guy. Smart guy. Clearly. But I watched him for no reason. He posted something on LinkedIn pointing to a CDC study about masks. This is about a year and a half ago. And he, and he wrote, 
See, it's really important that you mask up because it, it's really, really, really important because this study shows that masks work. I said, well, I mean, I, I know this guy, I respect him. So I pull up the study and I read it. It's like 14 pages long. And if you are not fluent in statistics, mm-hmm. you would not know reading the fine print. It was all in the footnotes. This study did not show that in any way. There was nothing in this paper that showed, first off, the end was like 48 people. It was all self-reported, right? So it wasn't even objective data. Um, But this guy, clearly for political reasons to curry favor with the Biden administration, took the time to lie. And it just, what would disturb me so badly, because this wasn't the government and Fauci and Burks lying for a governmental purpose, right? This guy deliberately took the time to lie publicly. And to this day, I cannot figure out why. Why did he think this is a benefit? Like, it was so upsetting to read a professional that I respected. Just lie to people. I don't know what went wrong in people's heads during the last three years. Well, well, I think, I think. Look, you're talking about contagion, and it's very invisible, and you can't see it. So once you talk about things like that, people get scared. I mean, when I went to epidemiology school at UFT, then also, you know, you're fascinated. You know, microbes all around us. We go to understand this is really a battle since the beginning of civilization between right. pathogen and humanity. And blah blah blah. So it's you know it's, it's mystical. You can't see it. They're saying this would kill you. Blah blah blah. And so you're just scared. Right. And you're it's everywhere around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And 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 they, and they made you think with the lies that Johnny and Susie next to you are disease vectors, and right. that you need to shut them out of your lives and your families or whatever. And you need to mask even in the shower. I mean, right. look in Quebec, in Quebec City, in Quebec, in Canada. They were doing crazy things that like when they yank a child out from school, if they, if they showed any symptoms and tested positive, they had demands the parents lock your child up in a, in a windowless room. Right. And nobody used to see that child for 14 days. Crazy. Put the food on the floor. A little child. Crazy. We suffered our people. Listen, let me tell you something. Did anyone actually do that to their own children because of these lies? Yes. Madness. Terrifying. You go on YouTube, you would see. People in Quebec and in Ontario and parts of America calling the police and your friend, your neighbor, because you see they had a couple of people over and you're peering outside like a like a COVID police, you call. And the police in Canada, especially, they're like they're insane. They go into the house. Oh yeah, I saw a lot I, of those videos. I, I tried to tell all of my Canadian friends, do you understand the Second Amendment yet? <laughs> None of that happened here. None of that crap happened in America. Never. Not once with the police well, coming to your home because a neighbor snitched on you for having a party. That did not happen. All the other insanity did. Without a yes, doubt. Yes. The thing about it is we suffered our people. We hurt them. We had police in Canada and UK and these places locking up people, dragging you out of your home. It was just COVID insanity. A fifth lie is that of natural immunity. When Walensky when those in the Trump administration task force lied to the public that natural immunity was inferior to vaccinal immunity. Oh, yeah. That was, that was a BS full lie. You know what I found so upsetting mean, about that, right? Because, sure. again, I'm not a doctor, but educated. My, you know, what, both yeah, of my kids. And so when we heard that, 
what I find so, well, there are many things about this that were infuriating. But what I find the worst, and I will make this a political statement, what I find so upsetting about the Democrats is they claim to be the party looking after the supposed working class, the uneducated people, the people who are weak. And the biggest lie ever fucking told is that they're looking after the people who, in theory, can't look after themselves. Because when they spouted these lies, everyone educated listened to this shit. What are you talking about? Even I know that once you have a disease and you recover, you have natural immunity. And you're telling me you're going to fire me from my job if I don't get this untested, untested vaccine jab? They harm the very people they claim to help the most. And it infuriates me. Yeah. Well, when we look at the data, we can see that that the elite class, the so-called Zoom class or laptop class, the money class, shifted the burden of morbidity and mortality to those who were least able to afford to shield and to lock down, particularly women, particularly poor minority children. Those people got more. When we look at the data properly, the, the poorer persons got more infected and more hospitalization, more death. There was a study done in, in Canada, in Toronto, and they looked at the 30 highest median uh, income uh, residences, residential zones in Toronto versus the 30 lowest. And it's clear in the data that those in the upper class had very least infection and deaths compared to those who had the front face. It's like the truckers. Right. You asked the truckers in the beginning, you told them, well, look, while the rest of this one, while we lie and the society to shut down, we want you to still keep yeah. the supply chains running. Yeah, keep working. And you face the pandemic. Yeah. And the truckers did it. The truckers did it. Then you turn around and you try to lock them down and force them to be vaccinated with the threat of law yeah. and the threat of losing their income. What we did was monstrous. That's why when monstrous. I go on a stage, they call me doctor, lock them up. Because I always end my speeches one way. I said, we must take them into a proper tribunal and inquiry. I want Fauci, Francis Collins, Burks, Walensky, all in the Trump administration, Azar, everyone, everyone. I want them to answer questions in a proper inquiry because this is America. This is not a kangaroo court country. Yep. We want them properly deposed. Although, right. to be fair... We've just had months of what I call January 6th, the musical, which is a kangaroo court. Um, Absolute madness. They are eroding the rule of law on a daily basis. Uh, What what Trudeau did to the truckers, my, my, I have to share this. I I have to share this as an example of the insanity of the last three years. I'm not going to provide any identifying information, obviously. A professional I respect a lot. Highly educated finance professional, an American who moved to Canada, were discussing the, during the height of it, just as Trudeau has issued emergency powers to deal with these very dangerous truckers and their families, right? Who are freezing in Ottawa and they're like bouncy houses for the kids. Yes. And my, my formerly American friend who's gone to Canada says to me, well, you know, they're not really truckers and they're not really Canadian. I said, excuse me? I said, oh, no, Steve Bannon is paying for all that. They're American actors. They're not really Canadian. They're not really truckers. 
And I was like, you are insane. You're insane. What are you talking about? <laughs> You've hired, yeah. it was just the distortion in people's heads in the last three years. Because I always believe that Occam's razor is right. Nine, 999 times out of a thousand, the simplest explanation is the right one. This yeah. vast conspiracy that Steve Bannon and the alt-right are paying actors to go to Canada to pretend to be truckers. Like, have you lost your minds? And the answer is yes. Many people did lose their minds. To believe that versus normal working class people feeling oppressed by their government are speaking out. No, in that person's mind, this insane Steve Bannon plot was the more logical explanation. It was one of those baffling conversations I've ever had in my life. Yes, yes, and, and I'm glad you share that. And I will just add to this: um, those truckers did that because uh, around January 15th of 2022 this year, they they were forced by the Canadian government that if you crossed out of Canada and you just drove into Buffalo, let's say Niagara Falls, right. New York side, or Detroit, <clears throat> unvaccinated. You will need a vaccine to come back into Canada. Come back. Or to right. come the and the truckers said no, because first of all, we, we're not going to get vaccinated. We chose that. We probably recovered from COVID. Moreover, we don't have two weeks to shut the truck down, so we can't. Right. So that's when they decided to go to Ottawa to ask to speak to the government. And you would know, if your viewers didn't know, I was asked to come to Ottawa. And I was on the floor with the trucks for three. The three weeks they were there, I was with them. Oh, wow. I did I, not know that. That's awesome. Well, I, if you look at those videos and those major speeches outside of the parliament, I was the scientist on stage speaking with Good Dr. Good for you. That's, I'm in the presence of greatness. I didn't know it. That's no, 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 no. No, it's, <laughs> not, it's not. I'm just saying. I'm just saying because I could see. I just wanted to get to this point. So yeah. I got to give you that background. I saw nothing violent, nothing that lacked peace. Those truckers lived. It was, it was fascinating how peaceful. In fact, the, the mayor of Ottawa, actually, in the beginning of, the, of when, they, when they came there, so maybe after about three days, said before they, they, he got wind that they have to now physically eject these protesters, right. he said that the crime in Ottawa dropped 95%. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> since, the trucks, since the trucks arrived. So, you know, there was a major snowstorm right. early this year in January. And it is actually the um, the uh, city couldn't get the kind of equipment. This was a massive snowstorm to dig out. It was the truckers. I was there. We were digging. We were shoveling. So many of them, they dug the whole city out. And let me tell you, one night I went out onto the street because I went and I spoke, I interviewed at night. I would go, they would build their campfires and stuff. And one of these truckers asked me to come in. This is, it was minus 35. I have to tell you, it was brutal. And he said, he'd come in and sit down. And uh, so I, I was doing my interview with him, sitting in the truck. And I looked back because I could hear, and I didn't know this. I looked back into the, it was those rigs with the cabins. Sitting inside of there, there was a, a lady and two little kids, maybe about five, six years old. So I looked at him and I said, well, you know, and he said, oh, so you didn't know, like, our families are with us. Right. I said, no. He said, yeah. My wife comes when I can't drive. She drives. 
and uh, we, 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 the kids get schooling on the, on the road. And right. uh, this is our life. So we are here because our life is in this truck. Right. Right. And the government of Canada, Trudeau and they did the most horrendous things to those truckers. They cut off fuel supplies so that they could freeze at night because they had to idle the trucks. It was minus 35. Right. Yeah. To keep the heat on. Yeah, of course. Right. So they were doing brutal, brutal things. And uh, I wanted it, it when it ended, if you, it, I don't know how much you, when it ended with the, uh, with the crackdown and the beating of the protesters and the truckers, <clears throat> at one point, you know, I was in Ottawa and I got these calls quickly because of, I was the one on the stage saying a warrant was just issued for your arrest and the other scientists with you. So I, I was shocked. At that point, I was, I was, I had already left Ottawa and had just crossed over into the United States because I told my wife I wanted to go to America. I had to go to a meeting and I wanted to, and we were driving. So when I got this call, I had actually crossed the border back into America driving. And I, and I said, what do you mean a warrant? For, yeah, there's, there's a warrant for your arrest because of uh, uh, your speeches on the parliament hill against the lockdowns and speaking for the truckers. So I immediately had to get lawyers. Who, this, who came to my defense to start working with the police to figure out, was it a nationwide warrant? Was it an Ottawa-only right. warrant? It was, it, was, it was just crazy what this government put us through. Trudeau is a nightmare. I try to explain to Americans who didn't don't really pay attention to Canada, which is most of the time, like, Trudeau's awful. He's awful. awful. He worships the Chinese communists. He said so repeatedly. He is an awful, awful human being. I, I will not go to Canada. I, I, I work with Canadian companies. I will not go there until he's out of office. But, I'm absolutely sure I'll be arrested at the border for you, a lot of but, the speaking out I've done. Well, you are right, because big people like myself, you know, I'm a Canadian citizen, even though I, I live in America, I'm a U.S. resident. Big people in this freedom movement, this fight that we've been doing for the last three years, um, I've spoken to them about, well, you know, now that Canada eased up a little bit in the board, they will not go to America. They are scared of being arrested. Yeah, they are, and they're yeah. right. They're right. Don't go. Don't go. Don't go to Canada. I mean, don't do. Don't make that. No mistake. way. I'm absolutely sure I would be nabbed at the border. Absolutely sure. I've mocked him openly on his Twitter account. He's awful, awful little fascist. He's a horrible, horrible little man. Yep. Yeah. And and uh, and uh, <clears throat> the sixth lie is that of early treatment. The lie yeah. that they told us that there was no available treatment when we knew that there were the combinations, multi-drug, multi-sequence right. combination of antivirals. That one I find the most baffling. Why would they tell people you can't be treated? What was the point of that? Well, this is, this is the thing. And they have state boards in America and colleges of physicians and surgeons in Canada Tying the hands of these doctors. But you know, Chris, it was a lie because we knew, like people like Rich, Harvey Rich, McCullough, Dr. Zevzalenko, Dr. Fareed, etc., Dr. Uso, Ladapo, Dr. Ladapo. See, people don't know this whole pushback. If I could just take half a minute to say this, Please. because it's very important. Dr. Joe Ladapo is my good friend. But set that aside. What people don't know is when when the country was locked down and we quickly saw the devastation from lockdowns and you know we cooled off and back to January we wrote you know we 
our push then and we get the, the, the great Barrington Declaration, all of that, I also have to shout out Dr. Scott Atlas from the White House, who I had the pleasure of working with, probably one of the best people in America. He was savaged by the, by the media. Oh yeah, horrible. Hounded, great, great, great American patriot. One of the smartest people I know. But when we started this, it was Jenny Beth Martin of Tea Party Conservatives. I, I have to be, I have to say the truth. She reached out to Ladapo, to Richard Oso, Dr. Yeah. Oso, to Harvey Reich, to Peter McCullough, and even myself, and to Dr. Freedom. She said, look, you know, what's going on here with the lockdowns and this masking and the school closures is suffering and killing people? Would you guys be prepared to uh, form a little group, a little email group, a little forum, and we start trying to educate the public? And we started, Ladapo was key in mm. the beginning of starting the, the information and the education of people on the harms of the lockdowns, the harms of the school closures, and actually the masks. This was even before the vaccines came, and he's a huge advocate against the vaccines, particularly children, particularly healthy children. He was key. And we were there three years ago, pounding away. And we knew and we informed the government that we showed them the data that early treatment, once administered right in the window of opportunity when you are first exposed or infected in that first 10 to 12 days. But yeah. from day one, from day one, once early treatment is given the antivirals, hydroxy or ivermectin, et cetera, you could cut the risk of hospitalization and death by about 95%. And we wrote those early treatment papers with Dr. Zelenko and Dr. McCullough, myself, and we were pilloried. Yeah, I recall that. And I, I, I made no sense to me whatsoever at the time. About 80 to 90% of the people who died in America, I have no problem seeing it because we've been seeing it on the stump, would be alive today. The government, the public health officials killed, killed, I'm using the word. Yep. They're responsible for the deaths of 80 to 90% of those people. In America. So if you're telling me right now a million people died in America during this pandemic, I would say 800,000 of them would be alive. Today. Wow, that's terrifying. Had the treatment been used. And that, that will go down in history, especially the move by the FDA, et cetera, to damage hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Um, that would go down in history as one of the gravest, gravest malfeasance acts on the population. So I just okay. went through about six or seven of what I would consider the grave um, uh, lies that doomed the pandemic out of the box. And Trump couldn't win. He couldn't, he couldn't battle it because, because the people who were doing the lies were his advisors. In that, well, that, that I think is, is such an important point, and I, I will touch on this briefly because we could go on for hours and we, we could. Yeah, oh, yeah. Is um, I remember when Rochelle Walensky came into the CDC. If you'll recall, as I remember it, for the first five or six days, um, she told the truth until they got to her with the rubber, rubber hoses and beat her up in the back room, right? My the most annoying thing that I heard during the first year of the of, you know 2020 always from liberal arts majors who did not understand statistics is whenever you suggest you know a rational person would suggest this masks are stupid there's no reason the schools are closed 
they would all say the same chant. And you'll pardon me if this hurts your ears, because no matter how they say it, here's how I hear it. This annoying nails on a chalkboard. I found it fine. They nip at me like a little dog. And it just drove me nuts. Because if you asked any of the people saying that to define standard deviation, they couldn't. Right? What it meant was, I'm a Democrat and I hate Trump and you're dumb. Is insanity. But the moment Rochelle came in, well, the science said children are at no risk and the schools should be open. And she said that for five full days before the deep state got to her and shut her up. And what I don't respect about her is she should have resigned on day six rather than start telling lies. Uh, I I find that appalling. Appalling. She should have resigned in protest and explained why she was resigning. Well, yeah, I I agree with you fully. And look, you know, I I don't like to uh, discuss people directly, but but we are speaking about people on a technical. And if people want to take me apart, they could technically, if you want. Yeah. And we will talk. And about I speak about people who are in policy positions who affect hundreds of millions of people. They deserve to be spoken about because they took the job. Yeah, and she lies. She lies. Her, her issue is she has a nice pedigree academics, and, and Rochelle Walensky is probably a great human being outside of the job. Maybe a tremendous mother, wife. Um, human being, your great friend, but as a public servant and a technical person administrating policy during COVID, she's a complete abject failure and she lied. I'll give you an example. Well, I've written on the brownstone of situations where she's lied yeah. and, and it's time for her to retract her lies and fix it, but CDC won't. But I'll give you an example. She came out on the news, this podium one day and saying, oh my gosh, um, here's this curve and she put up this graph and you see this graph going up. Look at these infections in teenagers. We need you need to get your child, your teen vaccinated. They were yeah. trying not to scare parents. Oh vaccinated. God! So you're looking at the graph, and I looking at the graph on the tube, and I'm saying, shit, you know, this is a this exponential increase in infections in teens. You know, and this was like I think around the Delta, the end of Delta, beginning of Omicron. I'm saying it looked like teens might be at more risk, and that might translate in the unhealthy teens. Not healthy people, right? In the unhealthy ones with underlying conditions may translate into some debt. So let's think about what she's saying. Then I started to read quickly, and people started to write me and say, Dr. Alexander, take a look at this. I looked at the proper graph. There was a graph already that she had, that the CDC had, that graph that went up. First of all, the graph was, was about five months old. Right. So that's great. So it's five month old data. That's wonderful. Yeah. As well, this is breaking news today. Right. We just put this together for you. But the real graph had the up, the peak, and the down. The the, the infections had already peaked and gone down months before in teenagers and flatlined among them. So she presented you a graph where she cut off the downside on the flatline. She lied. She lied. And uh, it is devastating. And um, so if the qualifications for her was, we need a CDC director who can come and lie bold face, straight face to the public. She had it down pat. She's oh, yeah. Hand. Yeah. She it's, it's, it. it's a mor- she's a moral outrage because the first, pure, yeah. the first press conference she gave and the first statement she made, I was like, oh, thank God. Rationality has returned. And over the weekend... She was shamed and scared into submission, and 
She came back and she's been lying ever since. The CDC, for those Americans who don't follow this because you're sane and you don't want to drive yourself crazy, they are still suing the FAA to demand masks on airplanes. They're still suing. It's insanity. They're still suing for the stupidity that does nothing. As all the airline executives testified, said, we've retrofitted our planes so that the recirculated HIPAA-filtered air in an airplane is cleaner than in an operating theater. You don't need to wear a mask on a plane. You can. Go right ahead if you want to. But the CDC is still spending taxpayer money trying to reinstate a policy 99% of Americans think is ridiculous. This government is You're so right. out of touch, it hurts. No, but Chris, look, you know, it outrages you and you're sitting down with you, my blood boils. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It'll, it'll keep the adrenaline flowing, keep all the plaque out of our veins. <laughs> I think if you ever met, if you met in person, we could sit down for like five days drinking beers just talking because I realize you would be a wealth of information for me too. And, and I like to share what I know. And I want to I wanna say two things to the public so they really understand where we are today. I want to say something about the lockdown issues and something about the vaccine. <clears throat> when we looked, and I looked at the data with Reese and all these guys, and I published, we published in Brownstone. When we looked at every piece of evidence for lockdown, we found not one study, not one piece of evidence across this world for the last three years, right. from the beginning of lockdowns to today, where any lockdown worked, not one. We looked at school closures separately. We found not one study, no indication anywhere in the world, none, not in America, in any state, nowhere, where any school closure worked to curb transmission of death, none. We found not one study to show us that any mask mandate worked, none, not one, zero. Zero. We found no study to show the benefit of masks, these masks in this respiratory COVID virus. None. Zero. Every, I want to say it to the public, every single COVID lockdown lunatic policy failed. None worked. Not one. I say to you here, I challenge Rochelle Walensky, Francis Collins, or Fauci, or Burt, or anybody, anybody, any doctor listening here, any scientist, bring to me. I'll meet you any day and any time. Bring your entire agency of the CDC. Bring the NIH and the FDA too. And show, the, show us bring the data you. that proved any of this crap was show worth us. it. Show me. Show me anything. You can't. You know you can't. You will never debate people like me or Rish exchange. Or you, Chris. And I want to end by this so the public understands why we are here with the vaccine. Because it's a simple explanation because... <clears throat> Dr. Naomi Wolf invited Rich, myself, Jeff Tucker, etc., to spend Thanksgiving with her and her family, and we went. And so we had the opportunity to be very casual and to just to talk informally at a very, very serious level about these issues. And I explained something, and they never, those who were listening to me never heard it explained this way, so I'll explain it. I think Gerd van den Bosch does, but he's so complicated, he's so brilliant. The public can't understand, so I'll explain it quickly. Excellent. And I know you understand it. <clears throat> when you vaccinate a population, and this is why these vaccines have failed, 
and everybody's being reinfected. Now we are seeing data in Australia, et cetera, where vaccinators, not just reinfected, they're being hospitalized and people are dying. When you vaccinate a population, you are trying, you are, when you vaccinate, you are going to stimulate adaptive immunity. And that's right. the goal. Right. You want immunological memory. Now, so, and the consequence, then it's the body, so part of that immunological memory. The problem is though, that that takes time between normally we would need one vaccine, but sometimes with that, besides that prime, we need a boost. But between the prime and the boost, two to four weeks, and then post boost, we might need two to three weeks. <clears throat> what we need is time for those vaccinal induced antibodies in any vaccine, for them to mature and to develop and to get to what we call the full binding affinity, the maximal binding to the target antigen. Hmm. If they do not mature, they will never, they may bind to the virus, to the target antigen, the surface antigens on the viral ball. In this case, the surface antigen, the target antigen for this COVID vaccine is the spike protein. So it may bind right. to the binding epitopes. But it cannot, it, doesn't, it has not reached its full functional capacity. What does that mean? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this in simple terms. If you mass vaccinate a population across all age groups, as we did here, and we did and we continue to do with this bogus bivalent booster. If you mass vaccinate a population into a pandemic, that means while there's circulating pathogens, that means there's high infectious pressure. The virus is constantly pressing down on the society, trying to infect. Right. Remember, it is as if you are trying to load your weapon whilst the enemy is on the battlefield with you. You really need to get to that battlefield clean. The right. enemy is not there yet, so you could set your cannons, you right. can set your fortress, and you load your guns. When the enemy comes, you could then destroy the enemy. If you were there and the enemy is there with you, as you are loading, the enemy is shooting you and killing you. In this case... That's an interesting analogy, and I think that will resonate. Antibodies is your weapon. The virus is the enemy. You cannot get to sterilizing immunity and to herd immunity if you load your weapon if you implement and roll out, you yeah. can never, ever, ever get a population level herd immunity if you roll a vaccine program out whilst the virus is circulating. Well, here's, That's the here, here's a logical question then, right? To, to continue that analogy, I would rather be loading my weapon on the battlefield while being shot at than not have a weapon at all. So is there any, is there, is there a continuum? Yes. Is there a continuum of efficacy where the ideal is what you described? You get enough time for full binding of antigens on, you know, the, the viral proteins, if that's... The, the antibodies way. onto the antigens, yes. Yeah, right. Antibodies on the antigens. That's the ideal condition. If you have the yes. ideal conditions. But is there no value in trying to even get partial protection during as you put it during this ongoing battle is it is it is it a binary well, outcome or is there some sort of well, continuum well well covid 
what we have done here has shown us, for example, you never vaccinate for flu in the flu season. You vaccinate outside of season. Right. For this Before. <clears throat> because, because, because when you use a vaccine like this, you have what we call suboptimal non-lethal force being put on the target antigen, the spike protein. Yep. So the virus is confronted with something that is non-lethal to it. You are making life uncomfortable for the virus, right. but you're not eliminating it. You're not stopping an infection or replication or transmission. So <clears throat> that suboptimal pressure that you, whilst the population antibodies are mounting, the mm. virus is infecting. So the virus now is being placed on a suboptimal immune pressure. And in those the virus that is circulating, there are the millions and billions of variants because variants occur, mutants occur. Right, they just constantly. keep mutating constantly. They keep mutating as a virus. So, so I ask this because this, this is the point I think that will that my listeners will want to hear. Because they yes. told, okay, <clears throat> it's going to prevent transmission. Well, it's not going to prevent transmission. No. Right, but that's what they, that most people have now heard. It's not going to prevent transmission. But it's common belief that if you've had the vaccine, somehow your personal experience of the disease is going to be less virulent or, or you know, a, a, a much milder outcome of, <laughs> of you having the actual expression of the, of the virus. Is that true or is that not true? Well, well the argument is, Chris, that it, it, it can provide you an individual personal benefit, but not a population benefit. Right, but for so a right personal there, benefit, personal yeah. benefit. But right there is the argument, right there, that if it doesn't stop you from transmitting, then these vaccine mandates will moot and null and void and should have never been bought. I'm not arguing that. I'm not arguing the vaccine mandate. I'm just saying for an individual person who says, I'm 65, I'm not in the best of health, should I take a vaccine? For me, in case I get infected, my disease outcome will be less severe. Is that actually a rational statement? Yeah, but, but, well, well, there is some indication. There is some indication. But remember, these proper studies have not done to tease out okay. the impact of natural immunity. Yeah, but everyone's making a decision in real time. And yeah. people scared. Yes, it, yes, is, yes. it is a disease, right? That's, yes. that's not debatable. It is a disease. Yes. The lunatics who claim it's a hoax, they're crazy. No, 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 no. Right. COVID has been catastrophic. It's real. It's the real. Median age of death, the median age of death is still remains 82 from, from yeah. February 2020 to today. Yeah, nothing has changed. Conditions. Yep. Two thirds of people. Right. Two thirds of people in America, so almost 70% who've died from COVID, were uh, people who were over 80 years old and had six or right. more. I'm telling right. you, six or more underlying serious medical conditions. And these this. Were very Socially, what I find fascinating from an anthropological standpoint is that used to be called life. Yes. Right? We shut down the world because people yes. who were over 80 and were sick caught a virus and died. That's, but that to me has been from February 2020 has been the moral outrage that has not yes. stopped outraging me morally. But, it's madness. But, but Chris, you're such a smart guy because you hit the nail. That is the that is the key issue because because the 
the average life expectancy today in America is 79. Right. But COVID kills median at 82. Right. So you've already won the lottery. If you hit, right. And the, the age of death in, I think, 1960 was something like 64 years old. And even in 1940, I try to explain to people, even in 1940, in America, 6% of babies born died before their first birthday, right? So we had 6% mortality for being born in this country. Yes. We never yes. even got close to half a percent mortality from COVID. And people yes. have no sense of perspective of biology. I just, uh, sorry, it drives me nuts. Well, <laughs> well I'm, I'm, I'm trying to answer the question you have because that, that's a very important question. From an individual point of view. Individual, individual. yeah. For someone who's scared of COVID. Yeah. If you are a high-risk individual, you have to make reasonable common sense decisions for yourself. Yep. And if it is that you need to, that you want that you make the decision, if you think you are properly well informed of the risk versus benefit, and you decide to take this vaccine, that is your choice. It should be offered, never mandated. Oh, yeah. So that's a decision between you and your doctor. But but I think the key. The key that you that that, that 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 was never explained to the population why the vaccine has failed is this. You have vaccinated people and you did not tell them that you need to go home and you need to not go out. This vaccine, the antibodies need between the initial prime and the first boost, the second, at least six, five to six weeks right. before the, the antibodies can function. So you can't just go to the mall if the if the pandemic was still because you will be reinfected right and it is your reinfection here's the key this is why i was getting to it it is the mountain population immunity that is suboptimal and non-lethal whilst the virus is pressing down that causes the variants among us the fittest variants that are most infectious to explode will overcome that mountain suboptimal immunity right and infect you and that variant amongst all will become enriched in the environment and become the new dominant variant right. that's what we want to overcome ba5 now it's been supplanted by i think bq 1.1 is now the new dominant variant infectious in other words if you keep mass vaccinating a population Whilst virus is circulating, you will only get variant after variant emerging. In other words, this pandemic will continue for a hundred more years. Right. If they and that, and so that's program. the difference. I think people will get that point. It's endemic now, whereas the the the, the flu is seasonal, and that's why yes. if you take a flu shot, you know what, ninety days in advance of flu season. It's yes. had that time where you are not being exposed to the virus mostly, and therefore it yes. has time to perform that that necessary work binding to the antigen. So when the yes. flu, flu does hit you, you have a larger larger immune, immunity to it, which is not happening yes. here because COVID not. is just circulating constantly; it's not going away constantly, and that's the issue. They continue vaccinating whilst the virus is circulating. The vaccine will never ever work. Ever. That's that is a perfect point for us to stop this this episode. Yes. Well, I, we can have another one, absolutely. That is yes. a really important point for people to get because what I what what is hardest I think is people are busy, 
it's a complicated topic. They know that at least someone's lying to them, right? Whether it's the government, whether it's you, like they know statistically someone's lying to them. So you both take in information in a busy life. Maybe you've had no education in statistics, no education in biology. You're, you wish you could trust your government. And in the past, maybe you could, but now it appears you can't. So I, I really, part of why I set up this, this, this podcast in the midst of the Wuhan hysteria was to provide some clarity to people, if I could, or at least provide voices that they could then listen to and think about and decide for themselves. I'm not telling them what to do, but that oh. that explanation was really, really good. That was that was the first clear explanation I've heard, as opposed to screaming, the vaccines don't work, or the vaccines are perfect, right? That's what you hear. Biden tells you, I got my ninth booster, I'm a genius. And other people are like, vaccines are evil, don't touch them. But predominantly, no one's explaining why. And that was a very good explanation. So well, thank you. Well, not to cut you on, I know you're ending here, but let me say it this way. Had they rolled this vaccine, this one out, with no virus on the battlefield, had we reduced the infectious pressure, meaning we use massive chemoprophylaxis, antivirals, get the virus off the battlefield, there was a chance that this vaccine might have worked. But That's the point. But it can't work. Can't and work. the idiots not seeming, the CDC right. and the NIS not seeming to understand the immunology and the virology. And yeah. it's basic natural selection will always select the fittest variants if you place the virus under suboptimal, right. non-lethal immunity, period. Right. That's, that's cr- and thank you for that, because that most people will get, get their heads around that. Right, they get it. They, they, they've heard enough about how vaccines work and they understand smallpox and pustules and the history of that. Yeah. They get all that. Uh, so that's very helpful. Paul, thank you so much uh, for coming on. I will have, we'll put a link to your book below and a link to your uh, Substack and Bradston articles. And I can't thank you enough for your service to the yeah. country, especially when those jackasses weren't paying you. Uh, and, yeah. and thank you very much for the work you're doing now. Really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Massini. I love what you do. I love that you had Dr. Rich. Dr. Rich is, look, Dr. Rich identifies himself as my rabbi. And he is. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good rabbi to have. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sue. Bye. Learn what Bitcoin is, how it works, and why it matters. Bitcoin 101, your ultimate guide to the fundamentals of blockchain.